News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're revisiting some of our favorite stories of the past year. Yes, there were some of them, even though the year was a difficult one. And the discovery of water on the moon was one of our favorites. This is something that scientists used to think was impossible. Well, it turns out there might actually be lots of the stuff frozen just out of sight. So we spoke with Mubdi Rahman, who's a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. This is a big deal at the moment and a really kind of surprising discovery. Okay, so how did they figure this out finally? So it's actually the way they did it is really cool. There is this uh, telescope that is mounted on a basically a modified Boeing 747. So it's uh, <laughs> they basically cut a hole at the side of the Boeing 747 and put this infrared telescope in it, and it flies around over uh, you know above most of our atmosphere, and that's been critical because what they were looking for is a type of light that water produces. And the problem with trying to do that from the ground is that our atmosphere has water. So you can't actually, anything that, uh, any of that light is probably coming from our atmosphere if you do it at the ground level, so you have to get around that. Um, and so they, pay, they pointed this telescope at the moon, and lo and behold, um, you know, on the sunny side of the moon, at this point where there was actually light illuminating the moon, they found actually a substantial amount of water, like the equivalent of something like um, a bottle of water, like just one you know, standard sort of drinking bottle of water, mm-hmm. uh, in like a you know, cubic meter of soil. Uh, and it's all just sort of in there, and it's liquid. Okay, but Mubdi, then why didn't we find this when we actually landed on the moon and brought back samples? Well, so, I mean, part of it is where we were on the moon, and part of it is that we don't actually, like, this is the first discovery of a pocket of it. It could be, much like Earth, there could be things like deserts and wetlands on the moon in the same way uh, that we have, you know, you know, the Sahara Desert is much, much drier than the Amazon rainforest. Um, And so part of it, we've only, like, really probed a couple of areas where people have actually landed. Okay, so then what does this mean for our kind of future trips to the moon? Well, one of the cool things about it is, so, you know, there's been a lot of talk of having a more sustained human presence on the moon. So, uh, you know, potentially having a moon base, having a moon telescope, things like that. Uh, and one of the things that we would have needed to brought uh, in you know, large quantities is water, right? Water is critical, not only just to, you know, if there are humans there, but to a lot of like our industrial processes and a lot of making things work requires water here on Earth. Um, this could potentially mean that some of that could just beyond the earth and we could have some sort of harvesting recycling system that allows us to use that. Interesting. Okay, so then does this change, do you think, our attitude towards going back to the moon? Uh, I mean, I think our attitude's been changing for about a decade now, where people have been excited about the possibilities of the moon. I mean, one of the big things that we can do with the moon is it actually is a great way of blocking the Earth. And so we can put things on the far side of the moon uh, that, you know, don't pick up any of our radio signals on uh, Earth. Uh, But this definitely makes it easier and potentially uh, a more intriguing place. And it already also shows... You know, as much as we think we know about the moon, there is a lot of mystery. If we, you know, if we're only now just trying to figure out, like, pockets of water that are fairly, yeah. you know, fairly massive. Yeah, that must be surprising to people who studied the moon for a long time, being because that was my reaction is, how did we not know this before? Yeah, uh, and I think it's just 
speaks to how hard it is to do some of this stuff. In fact, in many cases, it's easier to do this stuff for like planets that are much, much further away than is our own moon. Uh, one of the things that we often don't think about is that the moon is like really bright. Uh, that's a big challenge. It's actually very difficult to get a very clean, measurable signal. It's like, you know, if you stare at the sun, you're not actually seeing the sun. Right. You're seeing just the blur around you from all the sunlight. Uh, the moon for a lot of telescopes has been like that. So you're saying we take the moon for granted? Yes, we do. We definitely do. Maybe now we won't do that. So what's the next step now that we know this? So I think there's going to be a great deal of follow-up, right? This was just sort of a chance observation. Um, but now, like, and it was a risk. It was entirely a risk that uh, they wanted to do. They didn't think it was actually going to amount to anything. Um, so really? now, yeah, they re- they really just thought, you know, it's it's a possibility. It, you know, mm-hmm. we'll see. Maybe we'll get nothing. Um, but now you can actually, like, expect people to do proper, like, hydrological surveys, try to figure out, like, where is the water on the moon? How much does it change? Is it different from, like, in the bottom of craters versus on the outside? Um, what happens when, you know, the the shadow of the sun or the shadow of the earth and the light of the sun gets blocked? How does that change the water? Like, all of these things have just opened up a ton of questions about, like, the ecology of the moon. Fascinating stuff. Mubdi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you can see why that story really stayed with us. It is so interesting. That is Mubdi Rahman, a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto, quite the title. And that was all about the fact that they have finally discovered that there might be lots of water frozen on the moon. Amazing. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is the time of year when we always look back at the year that was. We look at the top 10 list for all sorts of different topics. So right now, the one we're going to talk about is food. Joining us now is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois at Dalhousie University to talk about the top 10 food stories of 2020. Good morning. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. I get the feeling, Dr. Charlebois, you were very busy this year, like busier than usual. <laughs> I think food was uh, was an important uh, aspect of everyone's lives, and uh, a lot of people wanted some answers <laughs> about uh, empty shelves, about how supply chains worked. So, yeah, we actually did produce over fifteen uh, different reports related to COVID, and and uh, trying to understand what's happening and what is likely to happen in the future. So we were, our crew uh, was very busy this year indeed. I'll bet. Okay, so let's run through this list here of the top 10 food-related stories of 2020. At number 10, you've got the resurgence of Tim Hortons. Why is that? Yes, uh, well, I, I think most of us uh, noticed that Tim Hortons was, uh, was experiencing an identity crisis. Uh, so in 2020, there was a change. Uh, at the top, uh, they have now a new CEO, and, and they're going back to basics. Um, you see, from tw- 2017 to 2019, Tim Hortons actually made 95 different menu changes. That's crazy. 95. <laughs> so they confuse Canadians and they confuse employees as well. Now they're back to basics, the donuts, the muffins, the coffee. And we are expecting over the next few years, uh, we're expecting Tim Hortons just to focus on, on the fundamentals, really, and not just going plant-based or yeah. the different things that they had tried and didn't work. 
Okay, so we'll see how that unfolds in 2021. But at number nine on your list is the issue of lab-grown meat. And Singapore made headlines for this. Yummy. <laughs> yeah, so it is It is a thing. Absolutely. So Singapore is a city-state. It is the first country uh, in the world to legalize lab-grown uh, meat to be sold commercially. Uh, by 2030, uh, the country wants 30% of the meat consumed domestically to be produced domestically. But they don't have space. And so labs are the only thing they could have uh, in terms of farms or farming, uh, unlike Canada. So we are expecting other countries to follow suit in years to come, including the United States and, yes, probably Canada. But in Canada, of course, uh, meat is not necessarily a luxury like in Singapore, for example, because we have plenty of space and our cattle industry is very strong. And so... um, I don't think there's any appetite for, for that in Canada yet, yeah. but the argument around environment and animal welfare are, is very strong. And Margaret Atwood nailed that one again in one of her books. Okay, number eight on this list is when we increased wages to people who were essential in the food sector. That's right, the Hero Pay programs or the Hero Pay debacle. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, the grocers saw a lot of employees staying home. They were scared of the virus, so they basically bumped their pay, their salary, by 10 to 15% in April to keep them in stores. But these programs were halted in June, and, and, and that's when Canadians, I think, realized that a lot of, uh, of the important jobs. Uh, uh, that do exist in the food industry are underpaid. And so now with a second cycle of lockdowns, we are seeing grocers um, offering uh, lockdown bonuses. Uh, Sobeys is doing it. Walmart is doing it. Dollarama as well. Not, But not everybody. But it, it is a lingering issue, and I, I think it's, it's, it's yet to be resolved. Okay, number seven on your list. This one I find really interesting too is uh, the going the separate ways of McDonald's and Beyond Meat. Whereas Beyond Meat had a lot of success, but one company they did not have success with was McDonald's. That's right. I'm not sure Canadians realize that McDonald's picked Canada as its plant-based lab. Uh, so in 2019, uh, basically uh, McDonald's uh, seemed to wanted it wanted to work with Beyond Meat and created this PLT plant lettuce tomato product, and they actually offered that product in 41 different restaurants in southern Ontario uh, for eight months. And and that pilot ended in April of 2020, thinking that perhaps uh, this, this, this combo would become a marriage between two major companies. But uh, just a few weeks ago, McDonald's announced its plan to go with a Mac plant strategy. So it's going ahead with with a mech, with a plant-based product without Beyond Meat. And since then, Beyond Meat has been uh, suffering. Uh, their share has gone down mm. significantly. So, yeah, it, it, instead of a marriage, we, uh, we saw a divorce in the food industry this year. And that's a major one. And do you think it was because, I know a lot of analysis on this said that maybe it was because of the motto of Beyond Meat, which was better than beef? I think I think Beyond Meat came with baggage because uh, for 11 years now, Beyond Meat is not a startup. It's been around for 11 years, but its motto has always been, well, 
it's, we're better than beef. And while in Canada and many parts of the United States, uh, beef cannot be replaced. It's just a different product. And I think that's, it, it is going to be a game changer. I think over time, plant-based dieting is only going to be considered as an option and not as a replacement. Right. Okay. So let's go to number six on our list here. And this was really fast. This was the rise of e-commerce in the food industry. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The amount of sales online has tripled this year. Triple. If you would have asked me 12 months ago, if Canadians would buy more online, I would say, well, probably, but not three times more. Uh, COVID actually made that happen, of course. And over the next five years, grocers will invest $12 billion uh, on, on e-commerce strategies. So this is only the beginning. Uh, and and the, and the thing, the reason why we think it's going to stick is that grocers are starting to learn how to make money online and mm. get us to buy more online. So it's not going to go away. That is so true. I know I did a lot more of that this year than I've ever done before. Number five on your list is the you know collapse of the food service industry and the way the whole industry pivoted. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you, we're leaving 2020 uh, knowing that we, we, we've lost 25 to 30% of, of our restaurants. That, that's basically the, uh, it's a travesty, it's, un, it's, it's unfortunate, it's been a tough year for them. So some of them had to pivot, they had to reinvent themselves, uh, they became, some of them became retail stores, really. Um, now, moving forward in, in the next uh, couple of years, we are expecting many of these uh, operators to come back uh, in a different marketplace, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they'll probably embrace technologies way more like uh, delivery, and, and their online presence will only uh, be better, I would say. Okay. Also on your list here at number four, and this one too, I think opened a lot of people's eyes. This was farm gate waste, essentially the amount of milk that had to be dumped and all of that because, because of what you just pointed out, the restaurant industry wasn't ramped up to its usual size. Well, the restaurant business is, is worth $95 billion a year. It, it, it closed overnight. And so the uh, retail industry wasn't ready for that. And that's why we saw a lot of empty shelves. But up the food chain, we saw a lot of disruptions between production and processing. Processors weren't ready to uh, accommodate uh, the influx of commodities. That's why we heard about uh, milk being dumped all over the place. Um, We believe that over 30 million liters of milk was, was dumped. This year, uh, some animals were euthanized, the eggs were thrown away, Um, harvest really was disrupted by the fact that we didn't have any labor out in the field, so we wasted uh, cabbage, mushrooms. It was horrible, and and I think that Gaines just didn't know what to think of it, Uh, and they just went on and and thought about something else, but we we just hope that this will never, ever happen again, and we we need a strategy in case something like this happens again. And at the same time as that was going on, though, we were becoming more domesticated, right? That's actually story number three that you talk about on the list, is how, as a society, we, you know, Stayed more at home, telecommuting, cooking more, gardening more. Yeah, if you stay at home and you spend time in what we call the heart of the home, the kitchen, your relationship with food completely changes. And we saw that in 2020. People started to learn recipes. They became more food literate. 
they even started to garden. Uh, one Canadian five started to garden this year. It's, it's unbelievable. And we do believe that telecommuting is here to stay. Uh, 23% of employers are actually uh, planning to allow their staff to work from home uh, the majority of the time wow. after the pandemic. So, so actually cooking is, is I don't think it's going to go away. I mean, some people will become nomads again, but a lot of right. people will stay at home. All right. The top two stories, the top two food related stories, we should say, 2020. Number two on this list is Black Lives Matter. What was the food related influence of Black Lives Matter? Well, first of all, Black Lives Matter, I think, marked 2020. Uh, yeah. It was around for quite a few years, but really the movement reached a pinnacle in 2020. And it affected uh, a lot of different economic sectors, including the food industry. And we saw uh, for many, many years, many days, well, for decades, uh, we saw uh, groups of black, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, submit uh, complaints against brands like Aunt Jemima yeah. and Uncle Ben's. Uh, seen they were seen as racist, and they were. Uh, and all of a sudden, because of what happened, because of the assassination of George Floyd, all of a sudden companies realized that they were wrong. And so we are expecting 2020 to be a very important historical year, and. Food marketing practices uh, hmm. will have changed forever, probably, because of what happened this year. That's so interesting. Number one, though, on the list, and this is not a surprise at all, the <laughs> panic buying that we saw during the first wave of COVID-19 lineups at grocery stores, lineups for toilet paper, empty shelves. That was nine months ago, and I still wonder what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if there is, uh, I mean, the last country to run out of food is probably going to be Canada. And, uh, and I would say I was very, very surprised uh, to see the amount of, of, of panic buying and, and unnecessary food hoarding uh, going on. Uh, and, and I think people just felt vulnerable and, and food insecure for for a moment that moment i think is going to be key uh it actually is influencing policy already in different provinces including bc by the way because you heard about it a lot during your election yeah i remember uh food autonomy became an issue and an electoral issue we are expecting that to happen at the federal level in 2021 if there is an election there's probably going to be an election but in many different provinces more and more provinces are looking at growing food all year round uh, yeah. to make ourselves less vulnerable and that's why the panic buying phenomena in march and april is going to be such a critical point in our history no surprise it's number one uh, dr charlebois thanks yep. for your time all right take care bye-bye you too sylvain charlebois director of the agri-food analytics lab at dalhousie university talking about the top 10 food related stories of 2020 this is mornings with simi well, there are going to be some critical talks happening today. They're reconvening, actually, and these are between the Indian government and farmers in that country. Now, you've probably seen in the news or heard or read in the news about the protests that have been sweeping not just India, but around the world in support of the farmers in that country. The subject of these talks and those protests are three new laws that will change the way the farming industry is structured. 
Farmers say, ultimately, these laws are going to favor large corporations and mean less money and support for them. So as mentioned, those protests have spread around the globe. You've seen them here in Metro Vancouver as well. So let's talk about how critical these talks are this morning. Joining us is Grinderman, who's a lecturer in the Department of Asian Studies at UBC. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Do you think there is a lot of pressure on the Indian government right now, given how these protests have swept around the country, around the globe? Oh, absolutely. There's a uh, significantly, as we've seen on uh, on the telly, there's a uh, um, whether it's England, whether it's Canada, the United States, globally, um, people are are coming out and supporting uh, the farmers, which they absolutely should be doing because the laws introduced by the Indian government are very troublesome for farmers since they are unjust and they're unfair. And if they're not repealed, will have a profoundly negative impact on the lives of farmers. So this is essentially a human rights issue uh, because these laws will leave farmers extremely vulnerable to exploitation. So the ripple effect has indeed been significant because uh, Punjabis, South Asians and, uh, and communities throughout the globe are very concerned for farmers, families, friends, in India, and for that reason, right. they are raising awareness. So, Gurinder, could you explain to us then what these laws do potentially that would cause so much damage? Um, yeah, for in a in a nutshell, what they will essentially do is they will deregulate the agricultural sector. They will be eliminating the minimum support price for crops. They will be ending public procurement um, and introducing contract farming uh, directly for private co- uh, corporations. So, um, what that essentially means is. The, uh, that would be ending government subsidies for farmers and the minimum support price um, where the government guaranteed for, uh, for at least a few crops such as rice and wheat. Um, they would eliminate government-operated infrastructure such as purchasing houses, which are known as mundis, where farmers take their harvest to sell at a minimum support price. And instead, what the government is, uh, is trying to do is allow big private corporations where farmers do contract farming for the private sector. So what that means is that big, greedy private corporations will be in the driver's seat with no one regulating them. And farmers will be stripped of their autonomy uh, and very open and very vulnerable to immense exploitation. You said that you thought that the government of India then was feeling some of the pressure. And I was wondering how much, though, because, you know, the government of Narendra Modi hasn't exactly been known for uh, worrying about what the international community thinks. Um, That's correct. Narendra Modi's record on human rights and the rights of farmers has, has quite frankly, been quite dismal. And uh, and a lot of the local media um, is playing a uh, manipulative uh, part due to corruption in India as well. However... When you have a substantial uh, um, amount of population in an international context coming out and protesting, in addition to, uh, to individuals and the masses protesting in India, and you, when you have world leaders such as, uh, such as Justin Trudeau, which we are proud who has come out in support of, uh, of this peaceful protest, um, then the Indian government will naturally pay attention. Is there a lot of sympathy within India for the farmers' plights? Oh, certainly. Absolutely. We're, we're talking about a substantial amount of population. We're talking about 60, 70 percent of the population of India are, uh, are farmers. And it is it is pretty transparent what the uh, what the government is trying to do here. They're trying to allow these, uh, as I mentioned, the big, greedy private corporations 
to sit in the driver's seat when it comes to when it comes to farming um, and leaving uh, leaving farmers open and vulnerable to immense exploitation. So what are the next steps here? What kind of progress needs to be made? Is it is it repeal these laws and, and that's it? Um, absolutely. That's, uh, that's definitely that's absolutely what they need to be doing. Um, it's a, this is a question of fairness and fair rates for the for the crop. So the first step that the government indeed needs to take is to repeal these laws, which, first of all, can be argued are unconstitutional as well, um, since uh, since agricultural issues are a state matter in India. So the first step is indeed repeal these laws. Um, the farmers are have indicated that they are content with the current system, um, which and um, from day one, what the what the government should have done was to listen to the farmers, listen to uh, the leaders of the farming organizations, because clearly what they've done is in a room by themselves, um, introduce these laws, which were not uh, were not discussed and were not introduced in front of the uh, farming organizations and their leaders. So a major step in the right direction is indeed to repeal these laws and do what is right based on fairness for, uh, for the farmers. How crippling have the protests been in India? It's indeed been crippling. This is, uh, this is by, far in, uh, uh, by far the largest uh, peaceful protest that's probably been ever recorded. Um, and I think, especially given COVID, I don't think the Indian government and Narendra Modi anticipated that the masses would come out in uh, in these numbers and uh, and protest uh, for uh, for their rights so it's been uh, it's been excellent to see such a, a such a well organized peaceful protest on the uh, in the streets in India and it's been great to see that internationally people are coming out in support of uh, of farmers because these these laws are indeed crippling and mm-hmm. will be crippling for farmers in, a, in, uh, in an Indian context. Now, Grinder, maybe you could explain to people here as well, like India really is a farming country, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. As I mentioned, uh, 60 to 70 percent of individuals are and farm, um, especially when we look at uh, states such as such as Punjab, which is a leader when it comes to farming. And uh, and BC especially has a very large Punjabi population mm-hmm. as well. And for that reason, we've seen a number of protests um, and activities happening here on raising awareness on this issue as well. So a, a significant, a substantial amount of the Indian population is going to be impacted. And what's important to recognize here is that this idea around uh, privatization, this idea has already, has already failed because we saw this a similar idea in Bihar, mm-hmm. in, which is one of the states, and it, this, this idea did not work well. In fact, you saw individuals from Bihar migrate to Punjab to, uh, to, uh, to essentially work in, the, uh, work in farming because in Bihar it was left at the mercy of these big greedy corporations and Modi's privatization plan uh, failed in, uh, in that particular state. So, um, so, that's, uh, so that's, uh, that's indeed the, hmm. the case there. Okay, interesting. Gurinder, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Gurinder Mann, who's a lecturer in the Department of Asian Studies at UBC, talking about how critical these talks are today between the Indian government and farmers in that country. The protests of those farmers because of these new laws have swept around the globe. We have seen several large protests, you know, right here in Metro Vancouver. In fact, Nav Bhatia, you know, who is best known as being the Toronto Raptors super fan, the number one fan, uh, this week returned a global citizenship award that he was given uh, from a, a 
a Canada Indian, um, like a global citizenship organization in protest, he said, uh, to stand in solidarity with the farmers there. So yeah, there's some high profile campaigns uh, in support of the farmers for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, most of us agonized over what to do about Christmas, right? Like stay home, don't have your usual large groups. Uh, maybe people, you know, bent the rules on that a little by having maybe one person over, but it felt so wrong because we knew what the rules were. Well, over in Ontario and in Quebec to some extent as well, their politicians are learning a very painful lesson on that. Uh, in the Ontario case, it is a government minister, the finance minister, no less, Rod Phillips, who essentially got caught out yesterday vacationing in in St. Bart's. Let's talk more about this story now with the help of Travis Dunraj, who's a Global News Toronto journalist. Good morning, Travis. Morning, Simi. Boy, this is quite the story. What has the fallout been like? Listen, this story just points to the height of hypocrisy when it comes to Minister Phillips' behaviour. Uh, I mean, the legislature here in Ontario rose for the winter break on December 8th. We then find out you know, yesterday that Rod Phillips, the finance minister, basically the number two minister, the guy, you know, next to the premier making the big decisions, is not here in Ontario. He is uh, on an island somewhere sipping, you know, a a martini or whatever you sip on on a beach somewhere. Uh, And initially yesterday, his office wasn't saying where he was, Mm -hmm. when he was coming back just that he was out of the country. And, you know, what I think irked a lot of people was the fact that the the finance minister took a series of photos before he went on this vacation that made it seem like on social media he was here. He even went as far as doing a, a video before Christmas Eve that was posted on Christmas Eve telling everyone to hunker down for the holidays, to stay at home, to observe the lockdowns. And that is what the Premier has said, you know, previously. So the the optics of this are really bad. Okay, I guess the question here as well, Travis, then is what did Premier Ford know and when did he know it? Like, did he know and was okay with his finance minister going to St. Bart's? Listen, the official line from the Premier's office is that he didn't know that Phillips was gone, that, uh, you know, he wants uh, Phillips to come back immediately, and that it's unacceptable. Now, that really kind of doesn't pass the smell test here, because if you remember, Ontario is in a lockdown right now. That went into place on Boxing Day, and there were emergency cabinet meetings happening the, the weekend before that and the week before that, that the finance minister would have had to have been in. Um, So either the finance minister wasn't in those meetings and the premier didn't say, hey, where's the finance minister? Uh, And and he wasn't consulting with him or the finance minister was in those meetings on FaceTime or Zoom and didn't say, hey, guess what, guys? I'm actually on a beach in St. Bart's. Uh, Maybe this is information that you should know. Yeah. Okay. And so what was the reaction? Yeah. What was the reaction that I know the premier Ford has said, get your butt back to Ontario? You know, the, the reaction from the public has been one of outrage because, I mean, listen, people are, if this was any other time, you know, and a politician sneaking away to uh, an island paradise when the legislature is not sitting would not be big news, right? 
But this is not any other time. We've got seniors that are dying every single day in this province in long-term care homes. There are families that are FaceTiming their loved ones hooked up to ventilators and ICUs to say goodbye. And people right across this province are heeding the government's advice and sacrificing holiday gatherings to hunker down. So I think that there is... Outrage because of the entitlement factor and also the hypocrisy factor here. So, you know, right. Rod Phillips is going to have a lot of questions to answer. And there are also there's also a lot of speculation as to whether or not he stays as the finance minister. Well, that's what I was wondering. Then I know the premier said that, you know, forgives him. He made a mistake. But can he keep his job after something like this? Well, we're going to have to wait and see on that one. But this is, uh, you know, I should point out as well, because you guys probably don't know uh, you know, all of the, uh, the the situations that have happened here in Ontario when it comes to kind of the optics and the messaging blunders that the, the government has, has had to deal with. But we have the premier during Mother's Day tell everyone, you know, stay uh, in your family bubble. And then he had extended family over to his home. Oof. He told everyone, don't go up to cottage country, uh, you know, when... We found out a couple days later, he went up to his cottage. Uh, we had the health minister who was supposed to be quarantining, shows up at a, you know one of the liquor stores here, and there's a photo taken of her when she's supposed to be in quarantine. So this is the, you know, the latest in a, a right. number of communications and messaging errors that I think the government is going to have to answer to. And yeah. you know, there's this whole narrative of rules for thee, but not for me, that people, I think, are quite frankly, sick and tired of. Uh, so true. Travis, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Travis Danraj, Global News Toronto journalist. So that was a government minister in Ontario and Quebec. It's a member of the Liberal Party in their uh, National Assembly in the province in Barbados saying, yeah, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have gone. What is with these people? This is Mornings with Simi. It is the news that has sent the community reeling in the last few days, shocked to hear about the 14-year-old shooting victim in Surrey on Monday night. And that's a day after a 19-year-old young man had been shot and killed in an unrelated incident on Sunday. So what is happening there? What do we know about what's going on? What could have caused all of this? Joining us is Karen McConnell, who's a criminology instructor at Simon Fraser University and at KPU. Good morning, Karen. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. I'm a fan. Well, thank you. Uh, well, we're good to talk to you this morning because I, we need somebody to help us out to figure out what is going on in Surrey. Does this seem like an unusual level of, we have shootings, but this level of violence, this level of killing seems unusual. Well, Simi, I note that you are also, uh, you grew up in Surrey and I think Surrey actually gets quite a bad um, a rap, un, un, unwarranted. Um, I think that the that when whenever these uh, tragic events occur, and they are tragedies, and, and we have to think of the families of of the young men that are, that are are dealing with uh, the grief of of this, we have to be careful not to um, think of this as unparalleled or unprecedented, or it's never happened before. And I I'll point out that you know gangs have been in British Columbia since 1909, and. And, uh, you know, we had significant violence through the 80s. In January of 87, a 14-year-old boy was shot while watching a movie in East Vancouver. Later on in 87, you know, another boy was tied to a chair in his parents' home and shot and killed. Of course, in 92, Jesse Cadman was killed. Um, You know, in 2011, we had three teenagers shot 
one of which died in a in a car. So it, it this is not this is not new, and uh, it it it, sh- it 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 is something that as communities we have to we have to deal with, and and you know fortunately uh, for us they when these tragic events occur, you know they are still new stories. My research that I did as part of my PhD was in Los Angeles, Detroit, New Orleans, um, Chicago, where um, young people being victims of gang violence is, is a regular occurrence. And so, you know, when a young person is shot and killed here, we do take notice because of, of, of course, the tragedy of it, uh, but also of the age. So well, there's been a lot of efforts, though, made, wouldn't you say, Karen, over the last, you know, five years to address these issues, these underlying kind of issues that might lure a 14-year-old into a known, you know, a different kind of lifestyle. Are we making progress in that, or does this tell us that we still have a long ways to go? Well, first of all, I, I really appreciate the fact that, you you know, you recognize that we have made a lot of efforts, and there's been a lot of really good programs that have started, such as Her Time and Gang Life, the Surrey RAP program, Project Lavender, yeah. the Surrey RCMPs, um, uh, Shattering the Image, um, Ministry of Public Safety and, and uh, Education partnering on the GRIP program with Safer Schools Together and the uh, the worrisome online reporting, community support, all that stuff. And so, you know, I, I think anybody who works in this area uh, says, hey, we're doing the right things. Uh, well, you know, are we necessarily getting what we need to for it? And I think we have to look at it in terms of what would it look like if we weren't doing these things, right? So there's lots of success stories out there. Young men like Jordan Buna, um, who is involved in gangs and now is, you know, a university graduate. Um, there's lots of those stories. There's lots of success stories. And there's lots of those, those are the ones that don't make the news, right? Um, there's a mm-hmm. lot of people that work tirelessly to try to prevent gang violence in our community. But it's hard to track. It's hard to see. So I, I always kind of come back to what would it look like if we weren't doing these things, and I and I always I do I always stand up really hard and say, you know, it's not unpar it's not unprecedented it's not unparalleled it's been part of our DNA in British Columbia for a long time. It's not going to get solved overnight. Okay, so what more do you think we need to do at this point? Well, I think we need to continue to support youth. Um, probably the leading academic expert in this area is a guy named uh, Dr. Scott Decker out of uh, the Arizona State University. He talks about desistance from gangs. He talks about programming. He talks about you know pro-social role models for youth. Um, and I think that's where you know that's one area of focus. We've we've also increased our police gang units uh, for suppression purposes. So. You know, uh, Irving Spurgel talks about prevention, intervention, and suppression. And you need all three. You need a holistic approach. And I think we're getting there. Uh, I think that people are um, are, are, are fed up, mm-hmm. and they want to do what they can as communities to reduce this violence. When we hear about stories like this, and then we end up talking about them, Karen, does that put more pressure, do you think, on the police? I mean, these are already notoriously difficult cases to crack. For sure. And I think the one thing that we have to do as a society, and as you know, I am a former gang police officer, is is we need to recognize that the police are not going to solve this problem, 
right? The police are part of the solution, but the police alone are not going to solve this problem. Early childhood education, supporting our teachers, supporting afternoon school programming, you know, um, the RAP program, all of these things that can do uh, to get us early intervention prevention will save us on the back end for suppression. And that's why, you know, programs that Safer Schools Together do, to, such as the worrisome on online behavior reporting, are so, so important. The grip training to yeah. get people in the community aware of what's actually going on, the facts, right? Yeah. What would you tell people then, Karen? Like, those people, like, I've seen lots of chatter about this on social media, people going, oh my gosh, I, you know, I live in that area and I'm, I'm horrified by this. Like, what can they do at this point to make this situation better for their community? Well, I get asked that question quite a lot because I do a lot of uh, training uh, with parents. And I think you have to know your kids and you have to know who your kids are hanging around with. And you have to be, um, you know, it's. I think a lot of us as parents want to be our kids' friends. And we have to recognize that we can be our kids' friends, but we have to be their parents also. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. There's a lot of um, a na- naivety that occurs in the community around things kids are smart they they're a lot smarter than you and i were when we were that age yeah, about no disguising things there's apps you know disappearing apps uh, there's all this stuff and it's really hard for parents so i think that's one of the, that's one of the key pieces is that parents have to be alive to it i think the other thing too is we have to celebrate the success stories that our kids that you know this doesn't happen on a frequent basis it's a tragedy when it happens but it doesn't happen on a frequent basis and lots of there's lots of good programs there's lots of good kids and and, uh, you know, I always talk about this, like I spent time in the 11th District of Chicago, I spent a lot of time in South Central Los Angeles, and, and Surrey gets presented in this way, and it's, it's, it's not at all. Surrey is a fantastic community with lots of really good things going on, and lots of good kids. Yeah, that is a good thing to remember with all this. Karen, thank you for your time. No, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Kieran McConnell. He's a criminology instructor at Simon Fraser University and Kwantlen Polytechnic University. And as he pointed out, he's also a former gang police officer. Uh, he knows of what he speaks in this regard. That's good to remember. So he's a good place. Lots and lots of good people there. And I know there was lots of chatter because of these two murders in, you know, a 48-hour period, especially with a, with a 14-year-old shooting victim in one of the cases that people were horrified about how the, can this be happening in our community. So Kieran makes some excellent points there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Via Sport BC is one of the organizations that has the job of navigating how health regulations impact athletics, particularly at the youth level. So we know there's some new guidelines for those athletics based on updated provincial health orders. So what does that mean for you and your child who maybe plays in some sports? Well, we're going to find out right now with Via Sport BC CEO Charlene Krepikovic. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlene. Hi, Sammy. Good morning. Happy holidays to you and your listeners. And to you as well. I know this is a busy time um, for everybody, but I know they're also thinking about what sports their kids can play. So starting at the youth level, what are kids allowed to do right now? What sports can they play and how? Yeah, yeah. Very good question. You know, this has been obviously very challenging for everyone to navigate um, the changing dynamics of, of COVID-19 in our communities. And, you know, we've been working, via Sport BC has been working with provincial health and others to really help figure out how amateur sport could still 
um, be active in, in our communities. And there's been an update um, uh, just recently to a provincial health order um, from December 15th, so a recent update just this week that further clarifies what can and cannot uh, occur in terms of a- amateur sports. So, um, so in, in terms of youth, um, so youth has now been defined um, for individuals up um, up to and including 21 years old. So this is a bit of a change from previous definitions. Uh, and the reason that this has been done is we found that there are, are many sports that have sort of U21 teams. So junior mm-hmm. hockey, um, field lacrosse, synchronized swimming, artistic, uh, synchronized skating, artistic swimming have um, teams that are sort of 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 year olds kind of playing together. And so um, this new change now allows for, for these teams to continue training. So that's good news for, um, for, for youth sport. Um, now, there are conditions in terms of uh, what can be done in terms of what kinds of activity um, youth sport can undertake at this time. Um, so re- basically, games, tournaments, and competitions are, are still suspended. And I think um, the key message here is that um, the, the provincial health orders are, are really trying to limit the, the, the number of gatherings and, and the amount of travel that we have. We've all had to kind of compromise uh, and, and yeah. make changes over, over the holidays. And this applies to sports as well. So there's still no games, no tournaments and competitions, but um, training activities uh, can occur. So like skills and drills um, and, and those activities that have low risk of, of transmitting uh, COVID-19. So those can still occur uh, provided that uh, the activities are three meters apart. So, um, so youth can still get together, can, travel to their home clubs to participate in training activities, uh, provided that, um, you know, they're, they're three meters apart. Okay. You can understand then also why parents are quite confused, right? Because oh, it's like absolutely. they can practice, but they can't play. Right. Yeah. So focusing on skills and drills at this point. Um, and, and, you know, this is, um, you know, this is the reality that we're all working in. Everyone's making compromises and we hope that, you know, with all of these compromises that we're making in our lives, that we'll see some, you know, flattening of the curve uh, in the month month ahead, and and hopefully, hopefully, some revisions and loosening of restrictions, uh, you know, as we as we move ahead in in the months in a few months time. But for now, um, this is what's prohibited. That's that that it what is allowed. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so, what does that mean for like if they play um, a sport in school? Uh, well, school sports is a little bit different. Um, so they have their own uh, their own sort of guidelines as to um, how they're managing sports in school, uh, working within a cohort model. So uh, what this particular provincial health order um, provides guidelines for is for community-based uh, amateur sports. And there's also some changes for um, adult sport, and I don't know if we want to get into that, yeah. Timmy, but... Um, so adult sport is for uh, individuals 22 years and older. And again, the intention of, of these restrictions is really to limit the amount of, you know, gathering and, and travel that we have at this time. Um, and so there's no um, indoor and outdoor group ta- group sport that's, that is allowed at, at this time. But um, individuals can get together, like if you're, if you're training with a coach or um, you have a trainer, you can still do that, provided that you're three meters apart. And if it's outdoor, you could um, gather with 
uh, with four people. So you could have a small, you know, group of runners go out for a run together or do soccer drills, you know, in a a small group of four, provided, again, that you're three meters apart. So, Charlene, is there a place that people can go to to get more information on all of this? Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, quite a bit of information on our website via sport.ca and certainly um, you know anybody can go there to understand you know the the current regulations and anything that is coming uh, you know we always post uh, it on our website as soon as we receive it. All right, thank you so much for your time on that. Thank you, Simi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. That is Charlene Kripiakovich, who's the Via Sport BC CEO, talking about some of the changes there for parents to know about when it comes to the health order clarification so they can skills do skills and drills with their team. But that's about it right now. You're only allowed to travel to your home club for the purpose of, you know, practicing like that. And that is the only place where you're registered. No more tournaments, no games, no scrimmage with another group of players, nothing like that, uh, particularly for young people.